Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, TikTok tax. There are a lot of bad ideas on the internet. Some of them are mostly harmless, but others can get you into trouble. Have you ever heard that you don't actually have to file taxes? Or that an LLC is the best way to write off personal expenses? Well, today, we're talking about 10 of these tax myths. And to help me out, I'm joined by Tax Notes reporter Jonathan Curry and Caitlin Mullaney. Jonathan, Caitlin, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Dave. Hey. All right, so so we're going to talk about some myths that are floating around out there. So why don't we just start off with the big one that sort of uh, leads into maybe all the rest. And that is this idea that paying taxes in the U.S. is voluntary. Oh, but wait, Dave, it says right there in the IRS's instructions for the Form 1040 that our tax system is, what is it? Voluntary. So, hey, problem solved, right? Well, th- that sounds pretty conclusive. So, so what gives? So, yes, it, it is voluntary in as much as taxpayers have to do the work themselves to determine how much they owe and then complete their appropriate tax returns. And that's, you know, as opposed to letting the IRS do all that work for you up front. But no, it's not voluntary to file your tax returns and pay your taxes. If you don't, you run the risk of civil or criminal penalties. Have you ever heard of sovereign citizens? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think we can all agree, don't be like these people. These are the folks who claim for some odd reason or another that they are not under the jurisdiction of the federal government, and then therefore they don't have to pay federal taxes. Voila. So they are their own sovereign entity. My understanding, I think you would agree, is that that's not going to work. I know the tax court has dealt with this many times, and they now usually just resort to an immediate Will Smith-like slapdown along the lines of, we will not painstakingly address these assertions with, and I'm quoting here, somber reasoning and copious citation of precedent. To do so might suggest that these arguments have some colorable merit. The answer is they don't. So you don't have to love it, but you still got to do it. Yeah, and if I recall correctly, the, the, the sovereign citizens have very interesting ideas about flags with fringes on them, and uh, admiralty law. Yeah, my advice, stay far away. (laughs) All right. Well, Caitlin, uh, why don't you take on our second of these myths? Let's say you're a student. You just don't have to pay taxes. Well, students might get a lot of benefits with that student ID. Unfortunately for them, their status as a student does not exempt them from paying taxes. That ID will only take them so far. Whether or not they need to file a tax return is still based on their total gross income and if they can still be claimed as a dependent. I'd also note that for scholarships and grants, they are typically tax-free for students, but that's not always the case. So students really do need to check on those on an individual basis. All right. Now that we've established that you absolutely do need to file and pay your taxes, we can talk about, well getting it wrong. You know, everybody is filing their taxes in the April timeframe and and they know the IRS has access to a lot of information about them. And so they really want to get it right. But, you know, sometimes they won't. So getting it wrong means going to jail, right? Ah, You know what, Dave? I'm actually going to get a little personal here. I actually owed taxes for a few years and my wife started a side hustle. You know, I thought, hey, I'm a tax reporter. I got this. Nope. We owed thousands of dollars that first year. And then the next year, I thought, hey, I'll shake it off. We'll get it right this time. Nope. So finally, I went to an accountant. We got all our ducks in a row. And then things did get a lot better after that. And it's been a little bit more straightforward. The point being, though, at no point during this experience did I go to prison. 
so the key word in this myth is you may not always go to prison, but under the right circumstances, you still might. It was only about 10 years ago that New York Congressman Michael Grimm was indicted for criminal tax fraud, and he spent eight lovely months in prison. And then if you go back to the Watergate era, Vice President Spiro Agnew got sentenced for income tax evasion in exchange for a plea deal on a whole bunch of other charges, and he resigned. The point is, pay your taxes, people, and then you don't have to worry about whether you're going to go to prison or not. So what separates the just getting it wrong from criminally getting it wrong? The biggest distinction I'm aware of is intent. If you were trying to avoid paying taxes and you knew what you're doing, that's going to get you in big trouble as opposed to making mistakes. When it comes to mistakes, the IRS is a bit more understanding. Support for this podcast is provided by SafeSend. Empower staff with tax automation software that is transforming the accounting profession. The SafeSend suite improves your firm's processes, from engagement letters and client organizers to assembly, delivery, and e-signing of tax packages, the SafeSend suite makes it easy. Clients love the intuitive, consistent experience at every step of the tax engagement. Staff love reducing the time they spend on manual labor-intensive tasks. Schedule a demo at SafeSend.com to see it in action. That's SafeSend.com. All right, well, let's move on to... Um potentially a fairly big mistake and potentially a, an intentional one. I've seen advice that says that if you want to write off some personal expenses as if they were business expenses, what you need to do is create an LLC and it's smooth sailing. I'll go ahead and take this because I think we're talking about the same TikTok videos we've all seen circulating social media about create an LLC, get free cars, free rent. I'm sorry to tell you that's not happening. Establishing the LLC is not going to let you deduct all your personal expenses as business expenses. I mean, while having your apartment rent count as a write-off sounds appealing to anyone, all the write-offs still need to be somewhat directly related to the operations of the LLC. So the most you're probably going to get in something like that is a percentage of your apartment used for your business. If the LLC business is operating for a profit, the type of business can maybe lead to a greater variety of what counts as your ordinary business deductions and what's needed, such as if you own a boutique, you might be able to deduct clothing samples for it or sports equipment for a coaching business, but it's not going to be a catch-all for all those personal expenses. All right. So this one's more of a question of the tax structure in the U.S., and, and it's the idea that the estate tax is not really a significant source of revenue. You know, I'm actually kind of torn on this one because even though the dollar amount is big to a humble wage earner like myself, relative to other sources of federal revenue, it, it, it's not that much. So you can be forgiven if you bought into this myth a little bit. In 2020, the estate and gift tax combined brought in $18 billion, and it's expected to grow each year so that by 2030, the Congressional Budget Office expects that the estate and gift tax revenues will hit just shy of $50 billion per year combined. And that's partly explained by the fact that the estate and gift tax exemption that was doubled in the TCGA is going to expire in 2026, and then that exemption is going to be cut in half, so more people will be subject to it, and therefore more revenue comes in. But, I mean, if you do compare this all to what the IRS has collected in total revenue for 2020, they brought in $3.5 trillion. So, I mean, it's not nothing, but it's also not a huge pile of revenue, relatively speaking. All right. Now, this one might relate back to, uh, Jonathan, your discussion of your wife's side hustle. But the idea is that if you receive more than $600 on an app like Venmo, Zelle, or Cash App, 
then the apps are going to report that to the IRS. I can hop in and take this, Jonathan. So with that, I have to say, don't worry about that Airbnb you split on PayPal with your friends or that dinner you split on Venmo going to be reported to the IRS. This new rule is not meant for those kind of transactions. It only applies to those business transactions that Jonathan was mentioning earlier on Venmo, Cash App, and PayPal. Basically, you know, when you look at the user face, there's usually an option for a purchase for goods or services. And when you click that, this goes into the column of transactions that do get reported. And it's also Zelle is not even included in this. They were not included in the original rule for this because they don't hold funds. They only facilitate the fund transactions between the financial institutions. So they don't actually do any reporting to the IRS. They leave it to the individual users to report their own transactions on that one. All right. This one is more of a a big picture myth. It's that business taxes only affect business owners. Yeah. So this is a fun one for all you economist nerds out there. The big issue at the core of this is a concept called tax incidence. And that's a way of trying to figure out who really bears the burden of a tax. Is it capital? You know, think the shareholders of a company or is it labor, the workers who in the long term get paid less or consumers who pay higher prices for products? The concept of corporate tax incidence isn't itself controversial. Most economists seem to assume that at least some ratio of the corporate tax burden does ultimately fall on workers and consumers. It's just a matter of figuring out what that ratio is. Now, the Treasury Department and the kind of center-left tax policy center both assume that about 80% of a corporate tax incidence is borne by capital, and then just 20% falls on labor. But the Conservative Tax Foundation flips that to something more like 30% falling on capital and 70% hitting labor. Now, either way, it does give some ammo to critics of President Biden's tax pledge not to raise taxes on anyone earning less than $400,000 a year, which he loves to bring up, by pointing to his huge list of corporate tax changes and then saying, aha, we gotcha. Your corporate tax rate increase proposal would slam normal people. So, you know, maybe President Biden could get around that by getting more in the weeds and offering the caveat that he won't directly raise taxes on someone earning less than $400,000. All right. So the next thing we'll talk about are tax havens, you know, and and from what I see on the Internet, they're these far off places, often sunny, sandy beaches. So so what's the truth here? You know, tax havens actually hit a lot closer to home than most people think. And a lot of places when there aren't sunny beaches, the Tax Justice Network currently ranks the U.S. as number two for the nation for financial secrecy and the 25th nation for tax havens. The growing trust industry and lenient trust regulation laws in some states are providing tax havens for wealthy millionaires and billionaires all around the world to send their money here. The Pandora Papers were a release of over 11 million leaked documents last year that showed over $360 billion in trusts in South Dakota, and state lawmakers there have continuously increased protections and benefits of trusts including an uncapped dynasty rule that allows families to indefinitely pass wealth from generation to generation without estate taxes at any deaths in the passing. And in addition to South Dakota, they're not alone. Delaware has long been a tax haven for corporations and Florida, Nevada, Alaska are all continuously looking for ways to appeal to bring these large amounts of monies to their states by having easier routes for corporations and individuals. 
Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California, Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. Ranked number one on the West Coast and number five nationwide, this innovative program prepares students to practice tax law at the highest level in the U.S. and abroad. Featuring a low student-to-faculty ratio, cutting-edge technology instruction, and dedicated career support, UCI's graduate tax program helps prepare students for a future in tax law. Program graduates are placed in top tax-related industries, practicing law in many major U.S. cities. Applications are open now. For more information and to apply to this highly selective program, visit law.uci.edu slash gradtax. That's law.uci.edu slash gradtax. Okay, and so now let's say I, uh, I followed in the lead of Matt Damon and I bought myself a bunch of cryptocurrency. So I won't owe any taxes on this unless I receive a Form 1099, right? Oh, man, this one has probably caught so many people off guard. I can't tell you how many tweets from tax return preparers that I follow on Twitter who have shared posts about clients who come to them and they're like, oh, wait, by the way, I don't have to report my Dogecoin, do I? And there's usually they're pulling their hair out and very frustrated to, to hear that. Now, I understand a lot of the crypto trading platforms have been trying to gain legitimacy and, you know, not be in the crosshairs of the IRS and Justice Department. So they'll automatically calculate your tax consequences for you. But just because you don't get an official Form 1099 in the mail does not mean that you're off the hook. If you have crypto assets, it's your responsibility to properly report them regardless of what your trading platform of choice does or, in this case, does not do. And also, this is definitely a priority area for the IRS. They know that there's a lot of noncompliance here, and they are coming after it. So if I were you, I wouldn't take your chances. All right. And finally, let's talk about a thing I've heard many, many times, and it's that American companies pay the highest corporate taxes in the world. A lot of corporations would like you to believe that, but that could not be further from the truth. The United States corporate tax rate doesn't even rank in the top 20 in the world, according to the Tax Foundation's Global Survey of Corporate Tax Rates in 2021. The United States only ranks as the 85th highest tax rate for corporations with a combined federal and state rate of just over 25%. Comoros, which is a small island nation off the coast of Africa, was actually at the top of the list with a 50% corporate income tax rate. And on the complete opposite end of the spectrum was Barbados with the lowest corporate tax rate at just 5.5%. Well, Jonathan, Caitlin, thank you for helping to dispel some rumors this week. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. And now, coming attractions. Each week we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Alan Montgomery and Ryan Montgomery explain the Joint and Survivor Granter Trust and the S election. Murray Sapiri examines whether and how Congress will move ahead on clean hydrogen in tax incentives. In Tax Note State, Tony Santiago reviews five key factors that influence the hiring and retention of U.S. tax professionals. Connor Clark and Edward Fox examine the American Rescue Plan Act's restrictions on state tax cuts. In Tax Notes International, Nana Amasarfo reviews recent developments in the realm of public beneficial ownership transparency. Three Tax at Work partners provide an overview of the European Union's draft third anti-tax avoidance directive. In featured analysis, Robert Goulder examines a proposal that would keep cost-sharing agreements out of advanced pricing agreements. 
On the Opinions page, the Tax Notes commentary editors share the topics they hope to see covered this spring, like transfer pricing and cryptocurrency. Tax Notes contributing editors Robert Goulder and Joseph Thorndike discuss whether inflation is a tax, all in five minutes. And before we go, a special note. The submissions period for the Christopher E. Bergen Award for Excellence in Writing is open. This annual award recognizes superior student writing on unsettled questions in tax law or policy. Eligible students must be enrolled in an accredited undergraduate or graduate program during the academic year. Submissions are due by June 30th. Visit taxnotes.com students for more details. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at taxnotes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com slash podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.